Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of the transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law has been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come will be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now this, now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Hanatu, for that reading. Good morning, everyone. Special welcome to those who are tuning in or those who are joining us here for the first time. I'm so, we're so happy to have you. Um, you could have uh, worshipped somewhere else. There's no shortage of options here in Lagos to worship to but. We're so happy that you decided to choose us. So, welcome. Um, I said my name is Femi, and you know, I've become more, more and more comfortable in, in, my, in my early childhood years. Like, I, I'm now, before I used to, I wasn't sure about the experiences, but now I'm like, you know, I, I, I had a good um, experience as a child. Because I look at my children, for instance, now, the sad, sad boys, I, I feel sorry for them. Because they, they have so many options. On, on what to watch, right? There's DSTV, and you have all the options there. Then there's YouTube. Then there's YouTube for kids. There's Netflix. There's Amazon, and all of those things. And you know, when you are when you are stumped with choices, you actually can't really yeah. choose. When we're growing up, apart from the fact that NTA, which will start at 4 p.m. on 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 weekdays, right? If you wanted better entertainment, you just had movies. And I am so happy that I got the delight of watching 1980s action movies. That was a delight. If you never thought, uh, watched any of them, I'm sorry for you. I mean, look at this list of wonderful people, right? Some of you know it. I mean, this was uh, after your time. Um, <laughs> but that's, that's Rambo right there. Slice alone, right? right? You don't know Commando, Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? And then, no, you can't know, this. this is American Ninja, Michael yeah. Dudikoff, right, yeah. right? Those were the days, right? <laughs> so, so, and here's the thing I like about these movies, is this, that everything was always building up to one place. It was the final scene. The final scene will pit your hero, like one of these three here, against the bad guy. The main bad guy. Some people call it the booze. I, I, okay, booze. All right. That one, that's the baddest bad guy of the 1980s. That's a guy called Franco. He was from No Retreat, No Surrender 3. That guy was terrible. I mean, it took two actors to actually kill him, right? And uh, the guy was so bad. Now, here's the thing. The actor would have gone through all the minions. Like, maybe they're like 1,200. He could go through them in like four minutes, right? But this main bad guy, that fight scene is like 15, you know, 15 minutes. And at the end, what usually happened, almost always happened, is because there is an irrevocable law 
of 1980s action movies, an irrevocable law, right? It is a law that can neither be altered nor repealed. And it goes something like this. Actor never dies. Well done, well done, well done. You guys were well brought up. All right? So eventually, he does. But the, the important thing about that final scene is this. Without that final scene, you will not feel like your, act, your actor really deserved that title of hero because he wasn't severely tested. He didn't go through a particular, a battle that brought out the deepest and the best from within him. Do you understand? We are back to the book of Galatians. It was Paul's most combative book because of the nature of what he was dealing with. It was seductive teachings that have infiltrated the church that was threatening to destroy the churches that Paul had planted. And in the passage that was just read by Hanatu, Paul knows in, that, in, those, that, um, in those passages, Paul is already entering a theological battle um, with the fight of the evil boss, just similar to the 80s action movie. You see, this almost represents the zenith of Paul's argument in the book of Galatians. It is actually quite difficult to go through some of the things he's saying because Paul, at this point, is dealing with the highest point of the argument of those people. Are you following me? And so Paul has to go deep within his thinking. He has to go deep within his knowledge to be able to make a thorough defense of his position against the false teachers. And that's what we have to go through today. Now, but before we do that, remember we've taken about a four-week break from the book of Galatians. So it's good to do a brief recap to understand where we are. So at the beginning of the book of Galatians in chapter 1, verse 1 to 5, Paul basically, you know, he gives us a basic introduction of himself and, you know, pleasantries and all of that. He doesn't really spend much time because this is a book of battles. So by the time you get to verses 6 to 10 of chapter 1, Paul tells them the reason why he's writing this letter, which is, you people are turning already to another gospel. And that's the reason I'm actually writing. And then, it is thereafter he starts to make his defense. And in three different consecutive scenes, he's going to make his defense based on personal historical things that have happened in his life. So from verses 11 to 24 of chapter 1, he actually makes, he defends the authenticity of his ministry by demonstrating that he was commissioned by Jesus Christ himself, not the Jerusalem apostles. Then, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, he defends the authenticity of his message by demonstrating it was the same one that was preached, that, uh, the same message that was preached also by the Jerusalem apostles, like Peter, albeit he was, they were preaching to different contexts, one to circumcise, the other to be uncircumcised. And then in 2, verses 11 to 14, he defends the authenticity of his anger by citing how he confronted the same apostle, Peter, for his hypocrisy because Peter treated Gentile Christians differently when they were alone and differently when they were in the presence of Jewish Christians. And so those are the three historical things that Paul puts forward. And after that, he goes theological. In 2, verse 15 to... Um, from 2.15, he now goes theological, but from 2.15 to 21, he then states his own main theological position. What is his main theological position? Against what they are saying, he says, you can only be made righteous before God, in right standing before God, in a right relationship before God, through faith in Christ alone, and not by obeying the law of Moses. And so by the time you get to 3, verses 1 to 14, just before us, he then cites, by example, from the Old Testament, the scriptures that he had then, the father of the, of the Jews, Abraham, and the experience in Abraham's life, and the covenant that God made with Abraham. And Paul says this, listen, <laughs> Abraham did not receive God's promise. He did not become righteous by doing things, he became righteous by believing what God had promised him. So he uses Abraham as an example. And so that's sort of where we are. And now, Paul, though, however, knows that even though he has said Abraham, not by faith, but uh, not by faith plus obedience, but by faith, Paul knows that these people, some of these people are like Franco. 
You know, they have certain things under their sleeve. Because he anticipates that they could, for instance, quote Genesis 17, uh, Genesis 17, verses 10 and 23. So after the Genesis 15 one, Genesis 17, God comes to Abraham a second time. And this is what he says, this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And so what did Abraham do? On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household, or brought uh, household or brought or bought with his money every male in his household and circumcised them as God told him. So they'll be like, you see, you see, it wasn't just that he believed, he actually believed and he obeyed. In fact, the obedience was to the commandment of circumcision. And guess what? That's what we're just trying to say in the law. We're not saying don't believe, we're saying the law also says. You should be circumcised. So, to be a true Christian and to really be assured of the promises of God in Abraham, you need to believe, but also do this act of circumcision. And Paul is like, man, we're in a fight. He now knows that he's facing the boss argument. And so he comes out gunslinging. And I want to appeal to all of us today, this is going to be a thinking sermon. Come with your thinking caps on. We're going to go deep because Paul goes deep. But the reason why we're doing that is because Paul understands that these people are coming against something that is so important in the Christian faith. They are challenging the basis of the assurance that anybody can have that God will deliver on the promises that he's made. And Paul says, man, I can't just let, I can't just let this go. So are we ready to go theologically? Are we ready to go deep into this? I pray at the end of this that we'll find that the blessed, assur the blessed assurance, uh, that we will find blessed assurance in God's promises and that we'll be equipped to defend the reason why we have that assurance. But above all, I pray that God will ensure that he renews us by his Holy Spirit to live according to his promise. So, with that being said, we are going to go through this sermon called Living by God's Promise, which I just, I changed. It's not what is advertised on IG, but who cares about that? <laughs> All right, so it's Living by God's Promise. And we are going through three different uh, sections. One, the blessed assurance. Two, the necessary law. Three, the life-giving promise. The blessed assurance, the necessary law, and the life-giving promise. Now, blessed assurance. I don't know how many of you have gone to a party, maybe an extended family party, and you, don't, you feel bad. You feel bad maybe because you have some payments that are due, right? You have some payments that are due. Let's say your rent is due, and you have not completed the payment. And one of those uncles of yours, the uncle comes in, and he says, ah, ah, Toby, Toby, why are you looking like that? You look sad. When everybody's happy, why are you sad? Toby, what's is it? Don't tell me it's money. Is it money? How can, it, how can it be money when I'm here? How much, uncle? Uh, just 250,000. 250,000 is the problem. That's why I'm not happy. Toby, see me in my office tomorrow morning, and I'll give you that 250,000. I don't know if you know that, uncle. Right? No, no, it's not about that. It's fine. So Toby's excited. Oh, my uncle has, you know, she starts dancing, you know, in the party like nobody. You don't know what is. Hey, God has done it for me. He has done it for me. You know, what, what my father, my uncle has done it for me. Whatever, but through God. All right? So Toby is excited. She goes the next morning, and she gets there. Uncle is like, ah, Toby, you have come. Wonderful. Now, please, go and help me buy this. Help me deliver this one to that woman. Help me pick up this person. And help me do this design for, that my, uh, for my card. When you've done all of those, if you can do it within two days, I'll give you the 250000 Lord, I said, that's not right. Is it right? How would you feel if that were you? What's the problem? Let me tell you what the problem is. And the problem is not that he asked her to do things and then he will give her the money after. That's not the problem because she could do that. The problem is what was initially seen as an unconditional promise has now been turned into a conditional assignment. You see, it's not an unconditional promise after you've met the condition. At that point, it becomes a debt that is owed. The introduction of, con of conditions after fundamentally changes the relationship to the blessing that she thought she was going to get. And Paul is saying that's exactly what is at stake here. You see, those people were saying the law, that the law covenant, the covenant that came to the Israelites, that God signed with the Israelites through Moses, that law covenant, those people were saying it was necessary for someone who wanted to be a Christian and therefore obtain the promised inheritance that God gave to Abraham 
and his offspring. Who is the offspring? Both Jewish and Gentile Christians. They were saying, apart from the faith that you show in Christ, that you needed to actually obey the stipulations of that covenant law. And Paul says, this will fundamentally change the nature of God's relationship, of how God's relationship was established with Abraham and, by extension, Christians. In verse 18, where you read it, Paul says that, for if the, if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. See what Paul is saying? He said it is either, uh, either promise-based or law-based, but not both. It is either grace-based or performance-based, but not both. And he gives two reasons to back up why they are wrong. First one, we see, uh, first is a timing issue, and the second is a structural issue. The timing issue, look at verse 17. He says, what I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God, and thus do away with the promise. Paul is saying, how can something that was meant to render another one inoperable, because that's what it means to set it aside. It will no longer be enforced. Why is it that that one will come 430 years later? That it makes no sense. The timing issue should give us a clue that this was not how God wanted to do it. The second one is a structural issue. In verse 15, he says, Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as one cannot set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. It should be like some people who got married and signed a prenuptial agreement, and eventually they get divorced, and then all of a sudden, the other person is saying, no, I still want claims to these things. It's like, no, we didn't alter it just because you, were, you, were, you started behaving well. That was what was established from there. This isn't how the thing is structured. In fact, he goes a little bit more explicit in this very strange verse um, from verses 19b to verse 20. Let me read it. It says, the law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. What does he mean here? He's saying that the covenants are structured differently. Let's take the first one, the law covenant. The law covenant says that it had a mediator. A mediator is someone that is in between two different parties. And who was this mediator? Well, that law covenant was given through the agency of angels, but it was mediated to God's people through the man Moses. So Moses acted as a mediator between two parties. The mere fact that you have a mediator means you have one party on this side and the other party on this side, which then means that the fulfillment of the, um, uh, the, the outcomes of that covenant depends on the performance of both of them. So the law covenant had blessings for obedience. God, on this side, is going to bless the people if they are what? Obedient. Are we together? So, God's side and their side. On the other hand, <laughs> if they were disobedient, God was going to curse them according to that covenant. Are we together? So, that covenant was structured in a way that depended on two parties to bring about the result of what it was meant to achieve. However, it then says God is one. Why is he saying God is one? When he came to the Abrahamic covenant, as Tommy showed us a couple of weeks ago, the last sermon that was preached in this series, that when God signed that covenant, you can read this in Genesis 15, verse 17 to 18a. When God signed the covenant with Abraham, what happened was they went through a process. Abraham had this vision. They went through a process where you would slaughter animals, and then you separate them, and then in the middle you walk. So the two parties will walk in the middle, and what they're essentially saying is, if I don't fulfill my part and my bargain of this covenant, then let what has happened to these animals be done to me. But in that vision, it wasn't God and Abraham that walked through those pieces. It was only God that walked there. The oneness of God was expressed in the fact that this covenant was going to be achieved by that one God's own performance and not Abraham. The structures were different. God is one. Now, is this just theological musings for the sake of it? Paul is going through all of this to say, no, there is something at stake, something that can be very damaging to the life of the, of the Christians at that time, and I would say to your life as well. You know what is at stake? Paul says, if you adopt this framework, it will deny you of the blessed assurance of knowing exactly where you stand with God and whether or not you will receive his promised blessing. Are we together? That is what is at stake. 
You see, because if you take that framework of obedience to God's standards as the measure through which you would have an established relationship with him and therefore inherit his promises, you will not have certainty. And let me explain by this. There are two categories of people when it comes to the performance, when it comes to um, viewing God's um, standards as the measure through which our, establish, our relationship is established and getting the covenant. There are two kinds of people. Who are they? Those who are aloof and those who want a woof. All right? Now, who are those who are aloof? Those who are aloof are people who, your general framework in life is this. If I'm ever going to get anything, if anybody's ever going to get anything, they have to earn it by going through the rules. All right? They have to earn it by going through the rules. So some of us meet it, right? We, you, you, you pass the exams. You're entered by merit. Uh, the games that we, you know, you're the kind of people that at a party, right? After we are going there, everybody's enjoying you. You're the one that will be arguing about this one in the rules. This one in the rules. You always want to know about the rules. So if you're that kind of person, you extend that thing to God and you say, oh, I think I should be able, what are the standards, God? I should be able to meet it. But the problem is this. If you're the kind of person that thinks you always meet every standard, you know what's happening? You are deceiving yourself. You've deceived yourself in that you've blinded yourself to some of the things you don't achieve or you lower the standard so that you can meet it. And so you are aloof to the impossibility of God's standards by lowering the standard or convincing yourself that you can make it. You can't. The second kind of uh, 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 aloof person is the one also who agrees with that framework, but you generally don't even meet human standards. You don't meet your own. And so even though you say, well, that's how, that's how life is. I guess that's how God is. So when you now come in presence of God's own, you see the impossibility of it, and so it then crushes you. The first one is deception, leads to deception. The second one leads to deflation. Those who are aloof. But who are what about those who want a wolf? Who are the people that want a wolf? You know, the people that want a wolf, just even humanly speaking, are people who believe they deserve the gifts that come to them. You know yourself. You are the kind of person who expects to never pay for lunch or dinner with people. You don't even go with your card. Right? You are the kind of person who believes that your salary should always be paid on time, even if you just show up at work and do nothing. You are the kind of person that feels that, after, after all, my NGO should always be supported. Can't you see uh, the children I'm trying to meet? You don't do any fundraising. You just, you're just there. Or maybe you are the kind of person that always hooks up with your friend to go in his car in the morning, but you never ever drop money for fuel. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. God, is, God is moving certain hearts here today. <laughs> These are wolf and entitled mentality. You know what he ends up doing is that he makes you the kind of person that knows the price of everything without knowing the value of anything. And so, I like that. Mm -hmm. It's good. It's good. <laughs> All right. And so you question God that why should God even have any kind of standard? And so you think, you end up thinking that God has blessing, he's a promise giver, he's a covenant keeper. <laughs> of course, I deserve his blessing. But what ends up happening is that that blessing of God, you end up devaluing it and you devalue the God that gave it as well. And so neither of these two ways of, 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 of operating with God's standards, thinking this is how you get the blessing and establish relationship, it leaves you, if you are true and honest with yourself, it leaves you in a place of uncertainty. And many of us, I'm sure, like me, I hate uncertainty when I'm in a relationship with someone. Where do I stand? How do I know what we are going to do? We need what? Certainty. And can I assure you that when it comes to the relationship with God, he wants to give us certainty. Listen, you cannot, God's grace is not like these things. You cannot, on the first group, you cannot earn it because it's impossible to earn. Our sin renders us unable to keep those standards. And as we know in Isaiah, for the second group, Isaiah 69 verse 34, you can check it out. It says, I wish they run belly. For the second group, it, you will never reach that certainty. Because the, the promise isn't a will because it costs so much. Jesus talks about those who have found the kingdom. He says it's like finding a pearl of great cost that you find in a field. And he said when he saw it, that person did not remain the same. That person did not see it as devalued. That person went and sold everything he had just to be able to buy that field. Amen. God doesn't want you to be uncertain. God wants us to be assured. 
about what he has done for us in establishing this relationship and what you can expect at the end. He will deliver on his promise. How do I know this? Open to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 13. God is talking about the context of the promise of Abraham. You can see that in verse 13, but if we are going to 17, it says, when God made his promise to Abraham, what are we talking about? The promise God made to Abraham, isn't it? Now look at what he says in verse 17. Right? When God made his promise to Abraham, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear. He wanted to make it not clear, but what? Very clear. To the heirs of what was promised. Those that will receive it. You know what he did? He confirmed it with an oath. What is the oath? Go back to verse 13. When people say, I swear by my mother's grave. When people say, I swear by, by this land. What are they doing? They are invoking something that is higher than them to tell you that what I am saying is absolutely true. You can bank on it. So when God wanted to swear, the problem was God found nothing that was above him. So when God spoke to Abraham, he said this, I swear by myself. In blessing what? I will bless you. If you have partaken of that covenant that God promised to Abraham, let me tell you this. God has sworn by himself. In blessing, he will bless you. No one can revoke it. But he didn't only just swear by himself. It wasn't just by an oath. Notice in verse, go back to uh, verse, uh, 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 verse 18. He said, God did this so that by two unchangeable things, two unchangeable things, the first one is the oath. What's the second thing? God's integrity, in which it is impossible to lie. If God does not deliver on the promise, it means that God can lie. And if God can lie, he's not God. And what is the result of all of this? What is God trying to make clear? Keep reading. He says, we who have fled. Because when we are uncertain, we are discouraged. We who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us. So that what? May be greatly encouraged. Because without certainty, you come into discouragement. Without knowing whether God really accepts you or not, even though you have messed up, you come into discouragement. And so you start looking in other places that can give you encouragement. Nobody can give you encouragement the way God gives you. And so this is why God wants you to know that you can have certainty. You can be firm and secure. Let's keep reading. This is what he says. Verse 19. We have this hope as an anchor. You can take your soul. Your soul can be anchored to this word. Firm and secure. These people were trying to destroy something that was fundamental for the Christian faith. Do not allow anyone to destroy that for you. God wants you to know with certainty that what he has promised, he will deliver. That takes me to my second point, the necessary law. Now, with all this negative talk about the law, it makes us wonder, oh, so I get it. The law is in opposition to, God, uh, to God's promises, right? If you're asking that question, good. Paul answers it. Paul already anticipates it. Look at verse 21. Is the law... Therefore, opposed to the promises of God. And you know how he answers? With a firm no. Absolutely not. In fact, he goes on to affirm implicitly the goodness of this law, the Mosaic law covenant. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. It is good. In fact, in Romans 7, 12, he says, what, he says explicitly there what he says implicitly here. You know what he says? He said the law is holy. The commandment is holy. It is righteous and it is what? Good. Oh, so if it is, then what's the purpose of the law? If it's not helping me with the promises. I'm glad you asked because Paul anticipates that also in verse 19. Notice. Why then was the law given? Right? Why was it given? Because as it is now, it looks like just like, like our appendix. Where's the appendix there? You see, we don't know. It's just to, it's when you have problems, when you've eaten too much Gary, and you eat too much Eba, it's time to cut it off. I can tell you, I am a man of the Jebu soil. I have been eating Gary from the way, the, the time they gave her to me. My appendix is still intact. I can tell you it's not about Gary. It's not about Gary. I'm sure. So we think that the appendix is, it, it is purposeless. That the problem is that we're not digging deep enough. We're not reading deep enough. Apparently, when you look at it, it just looks like it is, it serves no purpose. This is what we do with the Lord. Now, what people have done with the appendix, they've, they've dug deep and they said, no, actually, it seems like the appendix stores good bacteria. 
So when you have bad uh, disease like uh, diarrhea that cleans up your intestines, it cleans up the good bacteria, but the appendix is able to repopulate it with good bacteria and get it functioning again. I'm sorry for all of you who have already snipped your appendix. I'm really, really sorry. May God bless you with good bacteria in Jesus' name. <laughs> so the more we look and deeper, we'll be able to see the purpose. And Paul is saying the problem is that you are not looking well enough. You don't understand what the law is there for. So I'm going to explain to you, and I'll give you two reasons why the law was given. One, it was for transgressions, and two, it was a pointer beyond itself. It was for transgressions. Let me explain. Go to verse 19. Paul says this. It was added because of transgressions. It's better to translate it as it was added for the sake of transgressions. What is Paul trying to say here? The key is by understanding the fact that Paul did not use Oh, is in understanding this, that Paul chose the specific word transgression and not the generic word sin. You see, transgression is a form, is an aspect of sin that indicates that a law existed that has been violated. So I don't know if you will put it this way. I don't know if you have, whether your boyfriend, um, uh, maybe sometimes, your boyfriend did something as you guys were driving, he said something. You don't feel good about it. You're like, why, why am I feeling bad? Why am I feeling upset? But there's a bigger problem. You don't know how to explain to him that what he did was wrong because there's no way. You just know that you just feel one kind. Or maybe, you know, back in 20, let's say 2003 or 2004, you passed by your colleague who was watching YouTube video and your team, you are the team leader and the, the, the colleague, team member, is watching a YouTube video and you'll be like, I, there's, there's something wrong with that. But I, 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 there's a reason I can't, I can't stop him. Why? You know why? Because in both cases, there is no law, there is no policy, there is no agreement that says that this thing is wrong. The moment you tell your boyfriend, please, don't ever do this again because this is how this makes me feel. And the guy said, yes, the next time he does it, you say, hey, you see, your sin has increased. Now I can point to something. Why? The transgression, you've just violated this law. You have transgressed the law. Are we together? Yeah. If the company then says, you know what? There is a limit of five minutes on watching any social media. And in fact, you shall not even watch any, any videos that does not promote uh, your, your learning uh, in this job and everything. Then next time you see, hey, oh yeah, yeah, I saw you, I saw you, I saw you. It's in that way those policies increase the sin. Not that they increase the sin in that it makes you sin more, is that it makes it visible. So that's why Paul then says, in explaining this in Romans 5 verse 20, Paul says, the law was brought in so that the trespass might what? Increase. Again, not to make you do more, but to show, to make it visible. And once it's made visible, whatever judgment you pronounce on that, whatever punishment is issued, is justified. So in Romans 4 verse 15, he says, because the law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Can I say something to us on the side? There are biblical commands against that thing you did or you want to do. That thing which is making you feel bad or making you feel uneasy that you want to do. There are biblical commands against it. Don't ignore how you feel. You may not know the explicit command, so what should you do? Don't say no one is perfect. Don't say I'm spiritual but not religious. Don't say, uh, who knows, maybe it's just me just feeling guilty. Know what you should do. Don't act foolishly. Speak to a wiser, biblically knowledgeable Christian that can point you to the scriptures and tell you why your feeling is actually justified. Because God has given us laws ultimately for our own good, to keep us from making our relationship with God become awkward. You know what an awkward relationship is? When you have an awkward relationship with somebody, you start avoiding the person. You can't look the person in the eye. When you have to hug, the hug is not complete. Do you understand what I mean? But God has said, I don't want you people to ever take the excuse and say, eh, this awkwardness, eh, God, you weren't clear. Ignorance is not an excuse. Amen. And so if your conscience is already making you feel uneasy, if your conscience, because of what you are, you are going to do or because of what you've done, then go and speak to somebody. Amen. So the first reason is that it turns already existing sin into transgressions. That's the first reason. The second one, it is a pointer beyond itself. I don't know if any of you knows what this is. Who knows this? Uh, no, it's not just an AC. That is national AC. Let me explain to you. This AC, you know when they say actor never dies, this AC never dies. 
He never died. My parents, my parents, in their room, they still use this AC. It's almost 30 years old. And the thing still works very well. Do you understand? Right? It still works very well. I don't know if you've heard of Devo Electronics. Devo Electronics. My dad still has it in his office, right? He's free. It's from Devo Electronics. He bought it in 1981. Do the math. 40 years. That's why you've never heard of Debo Electronics. Because if your customers will only purchase from you every 40 years, you cannot remain. So after that, all of these manufacturers started doing something. They started ensuring that their products will not last. It's a philosophy called built-in obsolescence. That is why you have to change your iPhone every two years. What's wrong? That's why you have to change your laptop. It starts having all these uh, bugs and all of these things. That somebody just, after you spent the same amount of money that you spent on the laptop to buy it, you have now spent repairing it. You eventually say, oh, God, just let this thing go. Built-in obsolescence. That's why lamps don't actually stay beyond uh, you know, a, a certain period of time. They are designed with a specific purpose to keep you coming back to them. So they die. Paul says this, the law has in it a built-in obsolescence. It serves the purpose. That's why he says in verse, uh, in verse 17, it was introduced like a soap opera. That person that you really like comes in, spends like two, three episodes, eventually they die. You understand? It was introduced for a reason. In verse 19, it says that it was added. Why was it added? It was added until something. A better translation is unto something. Because until just tells you about the time. Unto tells you about the purpose. It's like running a relay race, 4 by 100. When you're taking your, run, your own first 100, what are you doing? You are running unto the next person. Amen? And so the law was unto the coming of something or some things, and I'll get back to that. But until that time, the law acts both as a guard and a guardian. As a guard and a guardian. Why do I say acts as a, as a guard? In verse 23, in verse 23, it says that, that we were held in custody under the law, locked up. We were locked up until something. In verse 22, it says the scripture has locked up everything. So as a guard that is guarding people who have been locked, the law is a guard. Are we together? But notice in verse 22, it says, it was locked up under the control of sin. Paul really goes into great lengths about this in Romans chapter 7. I can't do that. But what he's saying is that after it has locked you up, remember it says that it increases the sins, it measures it, but it also shows you something, that you cannot but sin. Even when you know what to do that is right, you cannot but what? Sin. It shows you also that you are under the power of sin. You are under the control of sin. We, don't, we are not sinners because we, we, are not, uh, we don't sin. We are not sinners. Help me. Help me. The second message. We are not because we sin. We are Idea is need. Do you understand? We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. All right. Right? We are under the control of of sin. We are powerless to do anything. It's like some of us evidently, right, most of us I'm sure would, but some of us today, sorry, it's obvious that you didn't uh, look in a mirror before you came here. But for those who looked in a mirror, as well like, like the guys, I'm not going, I'm not having a go at the ladies, because you even have mirrors in your back, so there's no okay. Right, the guys, right, we looked at mirrors. Now what is the mirror meant to do? The mirror is meant to tell you that your hair isn't properly put together. But notice, if it tells you that your hair is rough, it can never do anything about making that hair tidy, can it? Built into the mirror is to show you that you have a need, but the mirror itself is not the one that can give you that need. It points outside of itself. Amen. And that is where the law comes in also as a guardian. You see, as a guardian, you see in verse 24, it says the law was our guardian. It also says that as verse 25. As a guardian for, for the Jews, right, the guardians that were there were to teach them and prepare them for life. Both the Jews and, and, the, and, the, and, and the Romans. To prepare them for life, it showed them to, under, um, sorry, it, this, it, it, they trained the children with, for adulthood with the disciplines needed that prepared them to understand life and how to respond to it. It gave them the disciplines that are needed to make them understand life and how to respond to it. 
The mirror tells you that your hair is untidy, but it also gives you clues as to what you need. If somebody brought a spoon to you, you say, no, that's not what I need. If somebody brought a cutlass to you, you say, no, that's not what I need. If somebody brought a comb to you, you look at the mirror, you look here, you look at the mirror, you say, this mirror has enabled me to know that I need something out of it, but it also gives me clues about what it is that I actually need. Do you understand? You see, when it relates to sin, this is exactly what the law was doing. The law schooled the Jews in the need for a sacrificial system because of sins. It schooled the Jews in the need for a mediating temple between them and God because sin has separated them. It schooled the Jews in knowing that they needed a Sabbath rest from their labor because of self-sufficient sins. The law was pointing outside itself, but was also trying to help them identify that which they needed to deliver them from the control of sin. It was schooling them to identify their Messiah and know how to respond to him. Verse 24. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. You see, the law wasn't opposed to the promises of God, but it was there to serve a purpose unto something. What was that something? It was Christ. When you talk about the, um, uh, 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 the law being, uh, having a sacrificial system, Jesus says, I laid down my life for, for the sheep. In Hebrew, it says, one sacrifice once and for all. When he talks about a mediating temple, Jesus says, bring down this temple that was formed for 43, uh, 47 years and I will raise it up in three days. And they're like, what are you talking about? He was talking about the temple of his body. When it was about the Sabbath, Jesus said, you've been resting all this while. You don't have rest. But come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is why he said, I did not come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it. All that the law was pointing to, it was pointing them to know who their Messiah was. And so this is the unraveling of the promise. What does it do? Let me say it in this sentence. Unto, the law was given unto something. What is the something? Unto the coming of the promised seed, as you see in verse 16 and 19. Who will bring about the promised faith or religion. Uh, from promised faith or religion, as you see in verse 23. Through which the promised blessing will be received by the promised people who believe in Messiah Jesus. And now that Jesus has come, there is now no longer any need for a guardian, verse 25. Now that his faith, this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, built in obsolescence, delivered. Because Jesus has come. Well, that leads me to my third point. The life-giving promise. There are some of us here, maybe we'll say, I am so happy you spoke about this. So happy. Because I have specific promises that God has promised me. And they didn't come to pass. And I believed God, I believed God, I believed God. I wasn't trying to do anything, I wasn't sowing anything, I was just believing God. Why is it that this promise that God made to me did not come to pass? And this is where we must be very careful. We have to be really careful. Why? Because if God has promised something, guess what? He will deliver on it. If God has promised something, he will do what? He will deliver on it. Why? Because God is not a man that he should lie. Neither God is God the son of man that should he, he should repent. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and then not fulfill? You see, the problem is not whether or not God didn't deliver his promise. You should ask this honest question. I'm sorry for asking it. I should ask, did God really promise? Did God really actually promise you that? I'm not saying that we can't have dreams. I'm not saying that we can't have visions. I'm not saying somebody could not have given you a prophetic word. All of those things are there, but those things need to be weighed, and none of them rises to the, the extent of the promises that we have in Christ Jesus. For all the promises of God in Christ are what? Yea and amen. If God promises, here's what the scripture says, he will deliver. But there is nothing in the scriptures, nothing, absolutely nothing, that tells you that you can have a personal promise from God. Outside of it. And so let us be careful not to question the integrity of God. Let us be, quest, uh, be careful not to set ourselves up for disappointment. Again, I'm saying, God may give you a word. Test it. We'll see whether it goes. But be very careful before you say this is a promise because God always delivers on his promises. Amen. Amen. 
to which do you now say, all right, so what's this promise that comes through, this promise of Abraham, this blessing of Abraham that comes through Christ? What is it? And what good is it to me? I'm glad you asked. Because 21 gives us a clue of what the promise is in verse 21. It says, if the law could impart life, if the law could impart life, the righteousness would have come from the law. In other words, the law could not impart life, but the promise of God is all about life. The blessing of Abraham is all about life. What do you mean again? I'm so, I'm so you keep asking very good questions. Let me answer it. Let's think about plastic surgery. What? Yes, plastic surgery. Why do people engage in plastic surgery? And I'm not talking about reparative plastic surgery where people have an accident and they are trying to reconstruct something. No, 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 no. I'm talking about, I'm talking about something far deeper. To the beautifying one and all that is one reason and one reason alone. We do it to enhance our body and thus enhance ourselves. You see, the plastic surgery is there to make us feel. It gives us a sense of timelessness. Timelessness because it tries to make us look like our younger selves. Because the problem is we don't like to be reminded that we are old because being old points to the fact that you are going to exit this world and we can't deal with that. But when we are young, we are so young, we are so zealous, we feel like, oh, I'm going to be in this place forever. Youth always gives us a sense that we can be here forever. So what we're doing, we're trying to solve an issue of time and we're also trying to solve an issue of aesthetics. In other words, we do plastic surgery as a yearning to live beautifully forever. To live beautifully forever. But here's the problem. After you do the first one, two, three years goes by, you have to go and nip and talk again. Another five years goes by, you have to nip and talk again. The lips are never full enough, so you have to inject something there. The face is never tight enough, so you have to nip and talk again. The boobs are never big enough, so you have to put another implant. The stomach is never slim enough, stop looking at my stomach, and so you have to do another liposuction. The body is never big enough, and so you have to keep feeling. You keep going over and over. You will, if you have to remain uh, to fulfill that yearning in your heart, you would have to be eternally enhancing yourself to remain young. Why? Because the life that is meant to sustain that look is dissipating, is fading away. But don't you understand it? That is what the promise of Abraham has come to solve. You don't need to be eternally enhancing yourself. What you need is to be enhanced eternally once and for all. And that's exactly what Paul tells us the promise of Abraham is in Acts chapter 26 verse 6 to 8. He was on trial before King Agrippa. And this is what he says concerning the promise that God made to our patriarchs. Concerning what the, whole, uh, the tribe of Israel have been looking out for. And it is because of this hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I'm on trial today. This is the promise that our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled. As they earnestly serve God day and night. What is this all about? He then asks the question. Why should you consider why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? He's not just talking, he's not simply talking about coming back to life. He's saying that when we, when the fulfillment of the coming Abraham, uh, Abraham's blessing has come, you know what's going to happen? Your yearning to look beautiful forevermore is going to be given. Paul spoke about this as the resurrection hope. The resurrection that gives us new bodies. That says that duration, you will live forever. But also, aesthetic quality, you will be so beautiful. He says that you will be so glorious. Some of us want to be forever young. Some of us want to be forever old. But through the resurrection, guess what? You will be forever you. As you are always meant to be. Because it is going to be sustained, not just by any life, but by an immortal and imperishable life. He says that there was, a, there was an ugly body, but now there's going to be a glorious body. Listen, once you go under the knife of God, you will never have to go under it another one again. It is not for you to be eternally enhancing yourself, but that you will be enhanced eternally once and for all. To it, somebody then says, that's all well and good. But what does that do for me today? 
And I know that's your final question, so I'm going to answer it. What does it do for me today? Let me tell you a principle you should never forget. A foretaste of a true hope can transform you. A foretaste of a true hope can... Oh my God. Listen, when my wife cooks my favorite meal, when she's cooking my favorite meal, you know what eventually happens? Something happens. There is a shift at a moment in time. There is something called an aroma. The aroma starts to travel. It's like a white smoke, as you've seen. Right? It travels. It gets to my office. It gets to my nostrils. And once it gets to my nostrils, it tells me two things. Two things. That I am going to have a promised dinner that I'm going to enjoy for sure and now I am foretasting of that thing you see the aroma is a foretaste of something you know is definitely going to happen signed sealed and delivered let me tell you God gives us a foretaste of that resurrection life you know what it is Galatians chapter 3 verse 14 he said Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. God is willing to give us a guarantee by giving us the Holy Spirit. He is a foretaste of the life to come. He is a guarantee that what God has said He is going to do, He is going to ensure that He delivers on it. You see, because once I get that foretaste, the aroma, my mood changes. It changes even though I have not yet eaten the food. If somebody calls me and says, how are you doing? It's so nice to talk to you. You don't know why? Because I have a foretaste that something is going to happen. God has said, this is going to happen, but I'm going to give you a foretaste. The Holy Spirit is here to renew you. The Holy Spirit is here to encourage you. The Holy Spirit is here to equip you. The Holy Spirit is here to empower you. God has not left us alone. He will deliver on his promise. Don't allow anyone to ever tell you that the blessing of Abraham has to do with money. Money is too small. That the blessing of Abraham has to just do with healing. It's too small. God is saying that he's going to raise you up on the last day. And you can know that now because the Holy Spirit is here. So I want us to close with this. Because there are people that need encouragement. But I want us to say these scriptures together. Because in this scripture, Romans chapter 8, 1 to 2, 10 to 11, it crowns everything up. It tells us about the uselessness of the law and the coming of the Spirit. All under the, condemn, the lack of condemnation that Jesus Christ brings. So say it as a prayer before we all get into prayer. So let's write. Romans chapter 8, 1 to 2. 10 to 11. Let's say it with all our hearts. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life, who gives life, has set you free. But if Hallelujah! For listening to the gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.